retrospective of Stanley and Steve Ditko's run on The Amazing Spider-Man. We pick up with Amazing Spider-Man issue 24, which has one of the best covers of the Ditko run. Spider-Man goes mad, screams the cover copy, as Spider-Man staggers on the wall, his head in one hand. Ditko's body language conveys a man with a severe migraine, as hallucinations of his foes, the Sandman and the Vulture, swoop around him. In the background, a man stands at a desk. Windows and doors aren't where windows and doors should be, and the image is drawn so the floor is the roof and one of the doors opens to reveal a brick wall. The colours are also magnificent, with Spider-Man again adopting the darker blues and reds, and the blues of the background manage to convey a more clinical edge to the piece. It's a masterpiece of comic book artistry. The splash page is as good, but not coloured quite as well. On this page, Spider-Man reclines on a psychiatrist's couch as a studious man looks on. Spider-Man hallucinates a jail cell this time, alongside more abstract versions of his enemies, which this time adds Dr. Octopus to the mix. The shocker you never expected to read. Another towering triumph from the House of Ideas, packed with more action, thrills and surprise villains than you can shake a web at. As usual, it was written by Stan Lee, with art by Steve Ditko, and I'd accuse Stan of hyperbole, if he wasn't right. As our story opens, Peter is paying for a cash-on-delivery item, a hat Aunt May has bought for Mrs. Watson's party. Peter notes they don't have a lot of money left, but doesn't think that, given this, squandering what they do have on a hat may be considered wasteful. He decides to hit the skies as Spider-Man and see if there are any crimes happening that he can photograph to make some bread. He immediately happens upon a burglary. Was New York really this lawless a town in the early 1960s? Spider-Man breaks it up with some typically great Ditko fight moves, but he's planned to sell the photos he scuppered when Fred Foswell just happens by. These are two massive coincidences within the opening two pages, but I won't worry about it if you won't. Foswell starts to grill Spider-Man as is his job as a newspaper reporter, but Spidey takes off without a word. We find out later that this is because he's sulking over the lost opportunity to make some money. Personally, I think Peter is overthinking this. Given the angle of the photos, surely Peter could just tell Foswell he was on a rooftop taking the snaps. Nevertheless, Peter destroys the film and wanders over to the Bugle anyway to see Betty Brandt. This leads to a neat comedy bit where Peter has to hide behind desks to avoid Jameson, and a particularly funny panel where Betty shoves Peter's head down to obscure him from Foswell. Of course, a letter from Ned Leeds falls into Peter's lap, and we reheat the plot beat that's been going on for a few months now. Peter reacts angrily, calling Betty my girl, which Betty doesn't refute before storming off in a huff. I was left wondering why Betty had personal mail delivered to the Bugle rather than at home. The whole Betty-Peter romance has been relatively free of the love triangle shenanigans that Stan used in his other comics, but adding Ned Leeds seems to be an attempt to introduce this plot element into Spider-Man. Thankfully, it will be mostly unsuccessful. For the most part, though, the Betty-Peter romance has avoided the usual clichés inherent in superhero comics. Both are young, but have been going steady for some time now, with Peter even considering telling Betty his secret at one point. His reaction to Betty receiving mail from another man is quite understandable given his young age, impetuousness, and how Betty has been treating him, something that he's never really called her on. Betty was the one that started dating other people, if you'll recall. 
Elsewhere, Foswell tells the non-story of Spider-Man stopping a robbery to Jonah, who hits upon the idea of spicing it up with a series of Vox Pop-style interviews in which members of the public are asked why they all hate Spider-Man. This scene is exquisite. Stan is able to use this to take a poke at one-sided journalism, with the reporter asking the right kinds of questions, and even replying, You want to be in the paper, don't you? When people say they don't dislike Spider-Man. Stan and Steve were either way ahead of their time here, or one-sided bias journalism was just as prevalent back then as it is today. Later on, people even change their minds based on this completely fabricated news report, which is quite subtle commentary on the news media from Stan and Steve. The best part of this scene, though, is its end. Flash Thompson, Liz Allen and Peter just happen by, and Flash runs the reporter out of town, the immediate area anyway, telling him why Spider-Man is the best and asking why they don't print that in his paper. The reporter stammers, Yeah, well, the bugle's a fair paper, but it's clear Thompson has just ruffled his jammies. Unbelievably, the scene gets even better when Liz tells Peter she's struggling with science and can he be her personal tutor? As she says this, she wraps her finger around her hair and stands closer to him. She couldn't be more obvious if she ripped his clothes off in the street. Peter, being Peter, doesn't get this, but Flash does, especially when Liz starts running her hands through Peter's hair. Flash is livid. Being privy to Flash's thoughts, as we are, we see that Flash is really wound up and potentially a real threat to Peter here, especially if Peter were a normal kid. Flash claims to really hate Peter and vows that one day, when there's a crowd around, Peter will get what's coming to him. This seems to have been glossed over in recent years, and we must allow for Flash's growth as a character. But again, I'm going to point out that this is not Peter bringing this on himself. He doesn't even know how much of a loose cannon Flash really is. There are serious anger management issues at play here. Flash is clearly a guy whose default setting is to resolve problems, all problems, with his fists. And what he's thinking about doing here would, if acted upon today, see him upon charges. I think we'd all forgotten what a damaged individual Flash was, with only writer James DiMatteis following up on this many years later. Back at the Bugle, Jonah gloats about his completely unbiased news report. His moments of journalistic genius is interrupted by a visit from a Dr. Ludwig Reinhardt, who tells Jonah that Spider-Man is clearly suffering from some kind of mental breakdown. This, rather predictably, sends the highly strung Peter Parker over the edge when he reads the report in the Bugle a few days later. Peter leaves to talk to the Doctor, but Flash is hanging around outside Peter's house and starts following him. Flash has deeper issues than we thought. Maybe Dr. Reinhardt should be talking to him. Peter eludes Flash by hurling his spider signal into the sky and letting it flash, distracting Flash and allowing Peter to slip away. He switches to Spider-Man and swings by the bugle. There's a great mistake in this issue here that will only turn out to be a mistake next issue. There's a thought balloon that was clearly added in paste-up that has Spider-Man think, I'm glad I remembered to pick up my spider beam. Ignoring that it's not actually called a spider beam, the next issue opens with Peter returning to this very location to retrieve his spider signal. Somebody wasn't paying attention. Spider-Man alights on a rooftop opposite the bugle, but before he can leave, he's attacked by Dr. Octopus, the Sandman, and the Vulture. All three men disappear as quickly as they appeared, leading Spider-Man to believe he's cracking up. Rather unusually, there's a lot of other creatures prowling around tonight, with bats and cats wandering into panel for some reason. Ditko is the master of the panicked character, and there are some great panels in this sequence to this effect, but there is one particular standout. The first panel of page 11 is a close-up of Spider-Man, his hands clutching his head. 
Ditko reduces the size of the eyepieces and adds worry lines around his head, a different effect to the usual Spider-Sense lines. For some reason, this panel really spoke to me on this read-through. Spider-Man heads home where Ditko gets to indulge in more of his patented sweaty panic by having Peter Parker undergo nothing short of a total mental breakdown. There's a shot of Peter in dishevelled panic state that is masterful, not only for the art, Ditko's trademark, but for being coloured red, evoking the Spider-Man mask. When Spider-Man swings over the Reinhardt place later, Ditko pulls another astonishing shot of a mentally unhinged Spider-Man out of the bag. Ditko's having a ball with this issue generally, from its offbeat plot to his unusual panel work. Especially effective are the panels where Spider-Man enters Reinhardt's office, only for it to be upside down, to more shots of him hallucinating his villains as Reinhardt tries to calm him down. What Reinhardt says also makes a lot of sense, so it isn't just the visuals that are causing Spidey's mental breakdown, Lee's dialogue is playing into the story beautifully. Reinhardt correctly points out that leading a double life would be an immense strain on anybody's mental well-being. Stan does an exceptionally good job of writing dialogue here that is quite real, in a comic book sense, creating a character that evokes the audience's sympathy due to his seeming concern for Spider-Man. The writing is so good, as readers we forget that Spider-Man's mental collapse has been portrayed in little more than five pages. These sequences would be the focus of an issue nowadays, and the story would be at least four parts. Back at the Bugle, Foswell reports to Jameson with some bad news about Reinhardt, and Jonah, enraged, runs over to Reinhardt's place. I can only assume that New York really isn't that big. This is proven by the next scene, where the only other person on the streets is Flash Thompson, looking for Peter, who he thinks is on a date with Liz. Flash pursues Jonah, badgering him mercilessly about the Bugle's stance on Spider-Man. These pages are really cute, if implausible. Betty is annoyed that Jonah just left without word, leaving her in the office for another late night, and Flash pestering Jonah is genuinely amusing, especially when Flash asks Jonah why he doesn't pick on those nutty X-Men, and Jonah retorts by asking Flash why he doesn't go and play in traffic. Amidst the drama of a hero suffering total mental collapse, Lee and Ditko inject some much-needed humour. Jonah bursts into Reinhardt's office, interrupting just as Reinhardt has convinced Spider-Man to reveal his true identity. Then Flash bursts in and rugby tackles Jonah, and the strip becomes a Frasier-level farce. Spider-Man, now thoroughly confused, chases after Reinhardt, who flees when Jonah accuses him of not being a real doctor. Reinhardt is no match for Spider-Man, and it is revealed that Reinhardt is, in fact, Mysterio. Oddly, he's still referred to as Mysterio rather than being given a real name. Like a bad Scooby-Doo villain, Mysterio then reveals how he did everything, which is really quite clever. Everything that was set up earlier is paid off beautifully, with the bats and cats revealed to be projection cameras, and Reinhardt's office has been rigged to make the rooms look upside down. Yes, the plan was initiated quite swiftly, given that Mysterio only had a few days to orchestrate this whole thing, but people can work pretty quickly when they need to. Mysterio does seem to be operating on a different time plane to everyone else, though. He says he's wanted revenge on Spider-Man for years, but his first appearance was less than a year ago. Stan exploits the irony of Jameson being the one to save Spider-Man wonderfully, and Flash's joy at being key in helping Spider-Man crack a case is joyous. I especially love that Flash isn't even put out that Spider-Man calls him a fool. The only misstep is Spider-Man leaves before Mysterio monologues, so Spidey never finds out how Mysterio pulled all this off, which one would have thought he'd have had a vested interest in knowing. 
The issue ends with Liz bumping into Peter and arranging the study date after Peter apologises to Aunt May for running out earlier. The story closes with Peter and Liz walking off into the night, with Liz plotting what she'll spend the night doing with Peter. This is brilliant. Yes, there's a ton of moments where characters just bump into each other to keep the plot going, but so what? This is a fast-paced and hugely entertaining romp that again showcases the Lee Ditko team at the top of their game. Ditko's plot and art are sublime, and Lee again rises to the occasion with a superb script that masterfully walks the difficult tightrope between comedy, drama, farce, and heroic fiction. The final shot of the Spider-Man mask as flattened pancake and the floaty heads of the main cast around it is a great capper to what was a great issue. The fun continues into the next issue, captured by J. Jonah Jameson. The cover has a bizarre lost-in-space-style robot encasing Spider-Man in its flappy arms as Spider-Man shoots webbing at it. Even more bizarrely, the robot has J. Jonah Jameson's face. Which probably would have been a better title for the issue, now that I think about it. I was captured by a robot with J. Jonah Jameson's face. Has that kind of 1950s sci-fi vibe to it, doesn't it? Ditko opens the issue in similar fashion to how he left off last issue. Floaty heads of the main cast, including the funny robot thing and a man we've never seen before, are surrounded by images of Spider-Man fleeing around a chimney stack as the funny robot with Jameson's face runs after him. It's eye-catching and an interesting splash, rather than a good one, but it does the job of capturing the reader's attention. Interestingly, not only does Ditko prefigure the opening credits of shows like The Love Boat with this introduction, he has the floaty heads acknowledge each other. Flash is giving Peter stink eye, and Liz is looking at Betty with venomous hatred. This is also notable for being the first issue that gives Ditko credit for plotting, although it's generally understood he was performing that task well before this. The story picks up later on the same night. We know this because Peter and Liz are wearing the same clothes, although Liz's top has changed colour. It still has the same pattern on it, so we'll assume that this is a colouring gaffe. Peter leaves Liz's study date and decides to pick up the spider signal he left on the roof last issue, when he happens upon some auto thieves. Who'd have thought Forest Hills was a real hotbed for crime? Rather than switch to Spider-Man, he steers a passing cop in the thieves' direction with the spider signal and snaps off some pictures. The creators of this comic really knew how to open an issue. Having everything go Peter's way for once is a nice change of pace, and it sets up his good mood for the early part of the story. Having him spend the night repairing his spur costume is also neat set up for later. Early the next day, Peter takes his photos over to the Bugle, where an inventor named Smythe is trying to interest Jonah in renting a robot that will finally and irrevocably defeat Spider-Man. Jonah, remembering his previous failures, isn't interested, but Peter talks him around, thinking this will be a laugh and another chance to humiliate Jameson. Needless to say, Peter is shocked when the robot, which looks like a bow-legged astronaut, easily contains him. Even Betty is pissed off at Peter, reminding him of all the times Spider-Man saved her and Aunt May. What's interesting about this scene is that it's Peter's hubris that kicks the plot into high gear. Jonah, quite rightly, has no interest, his failure with the scorpion still forefront in his memory. But Peter strokes Jonah's ego magnificently, getting him to change his mind. This immediately follows Peter selling Jonah the photos from last night, under the guise of making Spider-Man look bad. Peter doesn't think this robot's going to be any real threat. All he sees are the dollar signs, thinking this will be an easy fight that he can then use to sell photos. The scene where Smythe gives Peter a jar of spiders, but the robot grabs a hold of Peter, is especially effective. 
Smythe chalks it down to a slight malfunction. The robot should have only grabbed the spiders, but when it grabs Peter, Peter realises that he may be in trouble. Trouble of his own making. To make matters worse, Betty is annoyed, and rightly so. This is all Peter's fault, and as such, a delicious premise for a story. Also of note, Norman Osborne makes another appearance. He has no lines, but is obviously a person of some importance, as Jameson promises to see to the ad he's putting in the Daily Bugle personally. Arriving at school, Flash is dining out on helping Spider-Man with the phony psychiatrist last issue, but poor Flash is obviously confused. He refers to this event as happening a few weeks ago instead of yesterday. Maybe Flash was hit on the head or something, as the opening of this issue makes it clear that this is picking up on the same day, and this is but the next morning. To compound this, Peter and Liz arrive together, and one of Flash's hangers-on clearly mentions the study date as being last night. Flash threatens Peter and says that if he's not around after school, Flash will find him. The high school hijinks are just a prelude to the high-caliber farce that is to follow. At the bugle, Smythe and Jameson have got the robot working, and it has immediately picked up Spider-Man's spider impulses. Whatever the hell they are. Peter is panicky all day in case the robot shows up. And wouldn't you know it, it does, right as the school bell rings. That's a real stroke of luck. Peter flees immediately, followed by Flash and his gang of thugs. All of these are pursued by the robot with Jameson's face. Peter manages to duck around a corner, use a flagpole to leap to a nearby rooftop, and changes to Spider-Man. These pages are amusing. Peter's sweaty panic is glorious, and of course the school kids, who think everything revolves around them, believe Peter to be worried about Flash when Peter couldn't care less about him. Again, covering territory I've mentioned before, Flash is a real tool. He's arranged to fight with Peter after school, and the mob mentality of his friends mean they're all behind Flash. As a mob, they chase Peter down the street with a view to seriously harming him. This is another example of the strip reflecting its times. Back then, this was just considered as boys being boys. Nowadays, Flash and co. would be up on charges. It's a remarkably unsympathetic portrayal of Flash Thompson, and it's even more remarkable that he's fondly remembered today. He's a brainless thug in these early stories, pure and simple. The robot catches up with Peter, who hasn't managed to change to Spider-Man properly, and is rushing around with his gloves and boots on. Flash and co. decide to follow Spider-Man instead, so Flash can help out like he did last time. They catch up with our hero as he prepares to take a stand against the robot in the street, cowboy style. Nothing Spider-Man does works, and he's forced to flee, a situation that turns the crowd against him. Ditko manages to avoid the campiness of this idea, which admittedly is pretty silly, but having this ridiculous-looking robot actually look like he's going to beat our hero. Spidey's clearly worried as he's silent throughout this entire fight, throwing out none of his usual banter or quips. Jonah being able to see what is going on and gloat over it is also a nice touch, as Spider-Man has to listen to him all the while he's trying to escape. This is a nice reversal. Spider-Man traditionally uses his quips to not only hide that he's scared, but also to confuse his enemies and put them off balance. Here, he has that tactic reversed against him, as he finds Jonah's goading and teasing too much to take. At the bugle, Betty, feeling sorry for Spider-Man, tries to distract Jonah or scupper the robot, but nothing she does pans out. She decides to leave to go and tell Peter this is all his fault. I don't see how she thinks this will help Spider-Man. At the Parker homestead, Flash and his cronies, including Liz, are all outside. Whilst it beggars belief that Flash thinks beating Peter up outside his own house is a good move, what makes this scene really memorable is that it's the first appearance of Murray Jane Watson. Granted, a giant flower is eating her face, but here is the beauteous MJ in all her glory. 
bearing witness to the stunning Murray Jane is almost too much for Liz and Betty, who almost suffer heart attacks there and then. Ditko managed to convey the utter shock that this screen star, Betty's description, would be interested in shy, bashful, studious Peter beautifully, and it's a comic highlight in an issue not lacking in humour. It successfully takes a subplot that has been bubbling along for a while and amps it up without actually resolving it. It does put us, the reader, in a better position than Peter, though, as we know MJ is a stunner, whereas he keeps trying to avoid her. Meanwhile, Spider-Man is regretting his most recent decisions and would probably rather face the wrath of Betty and Liz. The robot is continuing to pursue and Spider-Man is flagging. Ditko paces the art wonderfully, placing the camera in front of Spider-Man a lot so we can see some unusual and interesting poses, but this also has the advantage of keeping the robot in the background, a constant reminder of his relentless pursuit. Interestingly, he's never referred to as a Spider-Slayer in this story, perhaps because the goal isn't to kill Spider-Man, merely capture and unmask him. Whatever the robot wants, Spider-Man has had enough, and turns to face the toaster. Lee also performs his duties admirably, adding some excellent dialogue to the proceedings and having Spider-Man wonder if he's this annoying when the shoe is on the other foot. Confronting the robot backfires on Spider-Man when the robot's coils shoot forth with such alarming speed that Spider-Man is unable to escape and he finds himself trapped. Jonah and Smythe then make their first mistake, deciding that instead of bringing Spider-Man to them, they need to go to him, lest the coils loosen and allow Spider-Man to break free. However, to make this journey, they need to power down the robot so they can't see Spider-Man whilst they travel, a development that in this era of omnipresent Wi-Fi makes Smythe's technology look rather quaint. With the gloating visage of Jonah silenced for now, Spider-Man uses this time to access a front control panel on the robot's chest. When Jonah and Smythe arrive, they find Spidey writhing in the robot's coils, but when they unmask him, he has no head. Peter has managed to escape and he is manipulating the empty costume with his webbing as if it were a Jerry Anderson marionette. That the ending works as well as it does is due to the goodwill generated by the rest of the story and the humour, because otherwise it makes very little sense. Peter is giddy with delight that he's tricked Jonah, and his joy when manipulating his costume as if a giant puppet is infectious, and goes a long way to selling the scene. Likewise, Jonah's stunned expression when he removes Spider-Man's mask to find no head, along with Smythe's genuinely surprised exclamation of shock at this development, is very funny. These moments divert the reader's attention from the questions this ending generates. How exactly did Peter loosen the coils enough to get free? If he did that, why not just leave? Why sacrifice his costume for an elaborate gag? Granted, DNA testing wasn't anywhere near as accurate then as now, but given how much Peter frets about even the most random of coincidences giving away his secret, surely this would have been of concern. Also, where did Peter get his clothes from? He left them on the rooftop when he changed, and it would be a huge coincidence that he ended up on the exact same rooftop. Granted, all of this is nitpicking an otherwise hugely entertaining issue. Whilst this is very definitely fluff in the grand scheme of things, it's fluff of the highest order, and features some decent character moments, good action, and a nice dollop of humour. It's not top-draw Spider-Man, but nor is it a failure. The Spider-Slayer feels very much like a one-shot villain, although as more writers came along, more old characters would be strip-mined whether they deserve to return or not, and the Spider-Robot was no exception. The soap opera elements are well balanced with the main plot, and Liz and Betty's reaction to Murray Jane is priceless. Liz and Betty also both work together to protect Peter, albeit from different angles, and each unaware of the other. 
Peter, being the cause of his own misfortune, is also typically Spider-Man and handled well. J. Jonah Jameson, being the moustache-twirling villain, is again misguided. But at least this time he didn't cause a man to be driven insane, nor did he indirectly get someone killed. So we'll chart this one up as a momentary lapse in judgement. Smythe, later to be given the forename Spencer, isn't the villain of the piece at all. He's far more interested in his robotics and the scientific pursuit of same than a villain, and is actually a nice addition to the cast. I think I would have preferred he stay as a slightly absent-minded professor type than become the villain he became later. Flash is still hanging around the Parker household and finds himself moved on by the police. The issue closes with Peter returning home to Aunt May, who has found his spur Spider-Man costume, and Peter panics, pretty much outing himself, although, fortunately, Aunt May doesn't believe it. She keeps the costume, though. Peter then wonders how on earth he'll go into action when needed without his Spider-Man outfit. Amazing Spider-Man issue 26 will provide the answer. The man in the Crime Master's mask has an odd cover. Spider-Man is being gassed on a rooftop by a man in a standard brown suit and trilby, his face covered by a gas mask. It's logical to assume that this is the Crime Master of the title. The Green Goblin hovers in the background. The Crime Master and Spider-Man are really well done, and danger is added in that it looks like Spider-Man is about to fall backwards off the edge of a building. The Goblin, however, is really off. His face has none of the character of other appearances, and his glider looks lopsided, as if it has different sized wings. The Goblin's removal from the cover would have improved it. The Splash is very Eisner. Spider-Man sits on a large question mark, pondering the secret behind the Goblin and the Crime Master. They apparently also know each other's secrets, but Frederick Foswell is also privy to a secret. One only he knows. The figures being stood alone on a page bereft of a background is an intriguing visual. The issue picks up later in the evening of the same day, with Peter searching the house for his costume that May took off him last issue. A lot of people like to point to Stanley slamming the brakes on with regards to the real-time movement of the Marvel strips in the early days, but this is, as with the last issue, all in the artwork. This is the third issue in a row to pick up almost exactly where it left off, and this was also a new development in comics at this time. These four issues all take place over no more than five days, even if Stan didn't realise what Steve Ditko was doing, and this is the first signifier of Marvel time. As Peter Parker settles in bed for the night, the scene turns to the Docklands, where the Green Goblin and a new player named the Crime Master are arguing. Apparently, they have already revealed their true faces to each other and were planning to join together to bring the New York rackets under their control. But the Crime Master is now reneging on the deal, believing he can control the underworld better on his own. We then follow him as he announces himself to the underworld, bombing crime lords' cars and tossing grenades into mob meetings. After ensuring the underworld knows his name and his intentions, the crime bosses are abuzz with anticipation. We cut to Frederick Foswell hanging his work clothes in a secret compartment in his closet before starting his day at the Bugle. With this introduction, we are back into the crime noir escapades favoured by Ditko. Ditko's panels bleed noir, with Fedora wearing bad guys and clandestine meetings, double crosses and explosions, threat and counter threat. The seediness of the underworld is perfectly captured. This is, again, a stunning opener, solidifying the idea that Ditko knew how to open a new story. Individual panels look like the work of art they are, replete with foreboding shadows, sinister warehouses, and dingy, badly lit rooms. As is a Ditko staple, each face is unique. Everybody's 
clothes look worn and real and the shading is magnificent, especially when the crime master bombs a mob lord's car. The Dockland setting is also wonderfully rendered with great detail in the art. There's also a genuine reason for the Green Goblin to be part of this story for once, this being a part of his backstory from the very beginning, and the mystery of Fred Foswell has been building for a while. Foswell is a fascinating character. Initially introduced as a villain, he's been a figure of some suspicion, as far as Peter is concerned anyway, and this opening seems to suggest he's either the Green Goblin or the Crime Master. A nice fake-out. The next morning, Peter, having struck out whilst trying to get his costume back from Aunt May, heads over to the Bugle to try and find out if Jonah kept the costume he left behind in the grips of the robot. However, he gets into a knockdown, drag-out argument with Betty over his betrayal of Spider-Man, his dating of Liz Allen, and the elusive Murray Jane Watson. The fight attracts the attention of Jonah, who kicks Peter to the curb, but Peter manages to slip a spider tracer in Foswell's hat so that he can keep tabs on him. One of the things that has stood out to me in this rereading is that everywhere seems to be within walking distance. Peter walked to the bugle and then on to school. Last issue, Jonah walked from the bugle to wherever Spider-Man was being held, and this makes New York seem like a very small place. This is, of course, ignoring that everywhere Peter goes, he seems to bump into Flash or Liz. Also of note, Ditko has started introducing more diverse ethnicity into the strips. We're a long way away from Robbie Robertson just yet, but it's a nice touch. Peter's fight with Betty is the first serious blow-up they've had, and it's long overdue. Both parties have been bottling their feelings up for a long time now. Betty has been quite hard to deal with. When she was first introduced, she was a very sweet character, who seemed to like Peter for who he was, notably because she wasn't at school with him, and therefore didn't run with that crowd. Since the introduction of Ned Leeds, however, she's been portrayed as jealous and borderline hysterical. She never listens to Peter when he tells her he has no interest in Liz, nor is she interested in his explanation about Murray Jane. Peter comes across a little better, albeit not by much. He does mention Ned, but he never throws it back at her that she had started dating other men whilst he's been faithful. This dust-up in the workplace is totally unacceptable, and Jonah was absolutely right to throw Peter out. Peter then shows his unforgiving side by planting a tracer in the band of Foswell's hat. We've seen a number of times now that Peter isn't a man who believes in second chances, and he still thinks Foswell is a criminal. This is a really good story beat, setting Peter up for a serious fall. At school, Peter makes the mistake of goading a Peter that he's still riled up from his argument with Betty. Peter loses it and leaps into Flash's mob of hangers-on, demolishing them. And if Liz hadn't happened by and broke them up, Peter's temper would have gotten the better of him. This is again a great piece of characterisation. Peter isn't a superhero pretending to be a wimp like Clark Kent. He's grown since becoming Spider-Man. He's not a wimp anymore, and he's now past the point of letting Flash and his cronies get away with their bullying. It's telling that when Liz runs away from the fight crying, it's because she believed Peter was better than Flash. But it's Peter who's concerned about her. Flash's only interest is in carrying on the fight with Peter. And I think Flash has become so obsessed with Peter, he's more infatuated with him than Liz. Then, Stan and Steve throws a curveball. Whilst Flash has been a sociopathic bully through most of this run, when Peter is blamed for the fight by the principal and takes full responsibility, a nice touch, Flash tells the principal that this isn't the case. It's the first decent thing we've seen Flash do, and a first step on his road to redemption. There are then a couple of scene changes. The crime master shoots a mob leader to make an example of him. The art makes it look like he shoots him dead, but the dialogue has one of the monsters say he's only wounded. 
Ben over at Jonah's exclusive club. Jonah boasts about knowing a lot about this crime war, and an exclusive will be forthcoming. What's interesting about this scene is that the man who looks suspiciously like Norman Osborn is the one who asks Jonah if Foswell can be trusted. This is incredibly subtle, and something that is only obvious after the fact. Once we know who the goblin is, this reads as Norman knowing something about Foswell that he's planting in Jonah's mind. I'd love to know if this was intentional, but I guess I never will. From here on in, the story picks up pace. Peter decides to buy a tacky, fancy-dressed Spider-Man costume, just so he can keep an eye on Foswell. This turns out to be a mistake when the costume rides up on him. He then decides to break into Foswell's apartment, where he's spotted by the crime master who tries to shoot Spider-Man. Spider-Man's spider-sense warns him, and there then follows a really interestingly choreographed fight, where Spider-Man must take on one man with a gun. This proves a tad more difficult than we may think, and although Spidey does eventually gain the upper hand, the crime master gasses Spider-Man with a gas that clings to his mask, and Spidey stumbles backwards and falls off a roof to his doom. These are some great pages. Peter buying the tacky costume is a funny comedy beat, especially when it rides up on him and he has to fix it with his webbing, but it's also setting up an important plot point to be paid off next issue. At this point, Ditko wasn't just plotting these things out issue by issue, but was setting up further stories for down the road, another way this strip was well ahead of its time. The fight with the crime master is also well handled. This one man has Spider-Man on the ropes, as he's a damn good shot, and the dodging and weaving action is exceptional. That this is all happening in Moonlight adds to the drama. Once gassed, Spider-Man gets the living snot punched out of him, and it's a really exciting moment when he falls off the building. Spider-Man is tough and has gone up against even tougher foes, but Ditko is able to make it appear here that he's beaten by a man with no superpowers and make it work. Peter manages to whip his mask off and then shoots a web line to prevent him from dying. The crime master then makes a massive schoolboy error by not watching if Spider-Man falls to his doom, which means he misses him taking his mask off. What a buffoon. Spider-Man's costume starts riding up again and he has to web it all back into place. The fall is beautifully handled by Ditko, and as a dizzying example of sequential storytelling moving so fast, we believe that this has taken place over but a matter of seconds. The next bit is the only odd piece of plotting in the story. Spider-Man heads over to the Bugle to get a lead on his costume again, and Jameson tells him Smythe has it. Spider-Man then goes back to Foswell's apartment, does some more breaking and entering, and spots that Foswell has ringed the Docklands on a map of New York. This would have been much better if Spider-Man had seen this before being shot at by the crime master, and if the Jonah scene had taken place before Spider-Man even went to Foswell's. This would have tightened up the action considerably. It wouldn't have even necessitated any redrawing. With some slight rejigging around of the panels and some dialogue changes, this could have all been done at the paste-up stage. As it is, this scene breaks the momentum of the story. Ditko does set up two issues down the line by mentioning that Smythe has Spider-Man's costume, and sets up the ending of this issue by having Spider-Man have to web down his mask, but again, these moments could have easily taken place earlier in the story. The issue then starts to bring all the disparate elements together for the climax. This is, again, exceptionally well done. As Spidey finds the ringed map, the mobsters are already converging on the Docklands, and the police are tipped off by Patch, the stool pigeon, as to what's happening. The Crime Master and the Green Goblin are also on their way. This isn't the first time Ditko's masterful plotting has brought about a climax in such an organic way, but it is the first time he's juggled so many subplots and characters with such a plomb. 
The goblin tries to prevent the crime master from taking the meeting, miffed that his plan has been usurped by the crime master. They have a brief fight, but the goblin escapes thanks to the smoke from his glider temporarily blinding his foe. The goblin then spots Spider-Man and attacks him, dropping his glider on Spider-Man's head from a great height, and then hurls pumpkin bombs at him. Dazed, Spider-Man manages to deflect the bomb, but not far enough, and the resultant explosion knocks him out. The goblin tries to pull his mask off, but the mask won't come, thanks to the webbing applied earlier. Nevertheless, the goblin grabs Spider-Man and interrupts the crime master's acceptance speech, telling the gasping crowd that the man who killed Spider-Man is surely the best man for the job of NYC Crime Lord. This is a great ending. The goblin and the crime master's little tete-a-tete is well handled, and we can feel the hatred these two have for each other, but the stalemate of them knowing each other's secrets prevents them from really acting upon their feelings. The goblin's attack on Spider-Man is cowardly, and the glider hitting Spider-Man on the head with such force that it dazes him is more violent than this strip normally is. There's heavy implication that the goblin did this multiple times, and it's perfectly in keeping with his craven nature. Interestingly, this is the first time we get an indication that the goblin is aware of Spider-Man's spider-sense, something that will come into play in issue 39. Starting with this issue, Ditko has also started opening up the art, using more six-panel pages than nine, as well as one-third page panels, such as the last page. The ending, with the goblin undermining the crime master, is very well handled, but the reader is left with but one question. How the hell is Spider-Man getting out of this one? The answer stands revealed in issue 27. The cover is Spider-Man in chains, but still managing to fight off the mobsters as the crime master and the green goblin look on. It's not one of the better covers, to be honest. The splash for the issue picks the story up exactly where the last one left off, and as such, isn't an alternative cover. Spider-Man is quickly chained up by the mobsters, and the green goblin tells the crime master his days are numbered before they've even begun. The action kicks off straight away as Spider-Man wakes up and then mounts his escape. Ditko was always looking for new and different ways to present the action, and this is a corker. Spider-Man still manages to dodge and weave, avoiding the goblin finger-bangers and the crime master's gunshots with skill, if not with ease. All hell then breaks loose as the mobsters try to contain Spider-Man, and the cops burst in. Sadly, this is another one of Stan's goofs. He captions this panel as if it's a huge coincidence that the cops were here, saying that they happened to be stationed outside. But the real reason is not only in the plot, but Stan just scripted it. The underworld snitch, Patch, is in the audience, and he wonders to himself if the cops got the tip-off he left for them. I could forgive Stan for getting this if this had been set up last issue, but this happened but a page ago. For Ditko's part, though, the fight is sensational, and features one of Spidey's most impressive feats of strength yet. Our hero manages to shuck off the mobsters that are crawling all over him, and in a simply superb panel, he flexes his chest muscles and, in true Superman fashion, snaps the chains that are holding him. Quite simply, one of the most stunning panels yet created for this strip, and it's a magnificent fist-pumping moment. Spider-Man sets up his camera and then leaps back into the fray to aid the cops. There's another wonderful panel from Ditko where he places his camera underneath Spider-Man as he leaps so that we see his underside, as if it's the Star Destroyer from the opening of Star Wars, and the action continues. Spider-Man assists the cops as best he can, while still punching the lights out of whoever he can get his hands on. His tactic of keeping the mobsters between himself and the crime master so the crime master can't shoot him may seem questionable, but the crime master is trying to kill him. 
He's also trying to avoid exposing himself as his costume is riding up again. This ably demonstrates how Ditko and Lee were able to wring comedy and drama out of this strip in even the tensest of scenes, often within the same panel. Wonderful comic storytelling that shows just how far this strip has come in a relatively small amount of time. No longer is an issue formulaic or even predictable. One issue may be a robot with Jameson's face chasing our hero down, the next a far more dangerous crime thriller. With the police mopping up the mobsters, the Green Goblin and the Crime Master decide to take their leave. Spider-Man can't hope to follow the Goblin, already far away on his glider, so he pursues the Crime Master into the sewers. What follows is one of the best set pieces yet created for the strip. Ditko excels at shadows and water, so a sewer chase seems a natural for him. As Spider-Man chases the Crime Master down under the docks, he must avoid the Crime Master's bullets. This is another excellent chase, very cat and mouse, and Ditko milks this confined space for all it's worth. As the crime master escapes into the sewer tunnel, Spidey follows, and Ditko emphasises Spider-Man's slinky nature. Spidey crawls slowly around the wooden beams, keeping his foe in sight, but not getting too close, lest the crime master put a bullet in him. When the crime master leaves a cloud of nerve gas behind him, Spider-Man creates a web mask to help him through it, whilst not giving up the chase, although this proves futile when the crime master hits an intersection, and Spider-Man doesn't know which direction he went in. The story then takes an unusual turn. Essentially, we've had the big climax, the final battle, as it were, even though we're only nine pages in. And Ditko makes a very brave choice by not having the strip turn into an extended battle scene. Spider-Man doesn't even play a part in the Crime Master's final moments. After again, just casually searching Foswell's apartment and finding nothing but an empty closet with a hidden door, Spidey heads to the bugle to locate Foswell and tell Jonah his suspicions. Across the way, the crime master is about to shoot all three of them in revenge, but the police corner him, and in the resultant shootout he is killed before he can reveal the goblin's secret ID. Foswell then informs Jonah and Spider-Man that the crime master was Nick Lucky Lewis, and he figured all this out as part of his investigations. This is quite simply amazing storytelling if we ignore Spider-Man's breaking and entry. We never see the crime master's face until Foswell shows us a photo. Spider-Man plays no part in his capture, and he even has the same reaction we, the reader, do. Who? The crime master is a no-one. He's of no import. We never even find out why he would kill Jonah Jameson in revenge, given there's no indications Jonah has had any dealings with the man. There is a certain element of genius to this, although perhaps if it had been Blackie Gaxton from issue 10, there would have been a bit more satisfaction to the reveal. This would have undermined Ditko's point, though. Not everything is connected. Random events happen. Not every loose end is neatly tied up. Modern comics creators could learn a lot from this story. Of course, Jonah is all over Spider-Man for being wrong, and Spidey leaves to pick up his camera. He can't find it, and in searching for it, trips over a rotting plank at the docks and falls into the water. He finds that a number of street kids have found his camera after the webbing evaporated, and he takes it back, looking a fool in his sopping wet costume that is shrinking on him. Fed up, our hero peels off the now too tight costume and heads for home. The Marvel books of this time were never afraid to make their heroes look foolish, and that's what happens here. Spider-Man trips, falls in the water, and then has this stupid store-bought costume ride up on him and shrink as the neighbourhood kids laugh at their Human Torch fans anyway. What sells this is that the reader feels Spider-Man's embarrassment. The panels where he pulls off the costume look painful. 
In a nice piece of continuity, Ditko draws Spider-Man on the same rooftop he changed on last issue, comfortably avoiding any questions as to where Peter got his clothes from. It's also only here we realise Peter Parker hasn't been in this issue yet, a full 16 pages in. Peter, fed up with Jonah, decides to sell his pictures to Barney Bushkin at the Daily Globe, something that irks Jonah immensely at his gentleman's club the next day, when he's bragging that the crime master story was all his doing. Interestingly, it's Norman Osborn who points out that the photos in the Globe are exclusives, without knowing that they are Peter's. With the loose ends tidied up, it's revealed that Foswell was in fact Patch, and has gone straight. A great twist, and the Green Goblin waves his mask around, whining that another brilliant plan was thwarted by Spider-Man. He will now lay low until Spider-Man has virtually forgotten about him. Peter, for his part, takes his Aunt May out to the cinema. The Peter and May material is really sweet. Peter had planned to spend the evening sewing a new Spider-Man costume, but seeing his aunt down in the dumps, he takes her out, treating her to all the popcorn she can eat. Peter's relationship with May could have done with more scenes like this, scenes that show just how much she means to him, but when they did happen, as here, they were well done and satisfying. May's reaction to Peter offering to take her out for the night is a touching moment. The patch reveal is likewise a great twist, and is one that plays fur with the reader. On a side note, the Green Goblin will never be seen again in a Ditko Spider-Man comic, although Norman Osborn will make one further appearance. All told, this was a great two-parter that demonstrates how far the strip has come since its inception. Ditko is clearly plotting these comics with thought being given to future events, what with the whole costume debacle and the Norman Osborn appearances, which are clearly not a coincidence, given that this is the third time he's shown up. The art is the first example of comics fight scenes being ballet, something common today but revolutionary in 1965. Ditko's people still look like real people. The mobsters are all seedy lowlives, the teenagers not the glamour pussies of TV shows like Buffy or 90210, and his portrayal of subordinate characters like Jonah and May equally unusual. With this issue it's clear that Ditko was playing the long game, even if he didn't always share this information with Stan. Amazing Spider-Man issue 28 is a classic. Not only is it a Marvel pop art production a phase Stanley went through, it boasts one of the best covers of the run. It's completely black, non more black one might say, with only Spider-Man's outline visible in red. This is a stunning visual. Approaching Spider-Man is a golden figure who looks more like a muscular Oscar statue. This, we are told, is the Molten Man. We also learn that this issue features Peter Parker's graduation, a simply stunning and magnificent cover. The splash page of The Menace of the Molten Man shows Peter again trapped in the iron belts of the robot from a few issues ago. In front of him, a man stands in a machine bathed in a golden glow. Weirdly for Stan, there's very little cover copy. As if to make up for the lack of Peter Parker in the last issue, this issue opens with Peter at school. The principal tells Peter that Flash copped to the fight and that Peter's in the clear. We will mention it no more. Stan's footnote points out that this was last issue when it was in fact two issues ago, but again, I won't worry about that if you don't. It's not the only error Stan makes on this page, as he has Peter call Liz Allen Liz Hilton for some reason. I'd assume he mixed her up with Paris, if Paris were even born yet. Liz cold shoulders Peter and Peter notes that this is odd, especially right before graduation. In the past, when I've read this, I've not really paid this any thought, but reading it here in sequence, this is quite odd. Now, 
I won't pretend to understand the fascination with high school that American fiction has. For me, it was something to be endured and then quickly forgotten about. But from watching many films and TV shows that concern graduation, it seems to me this is quite a big deal. There's prom and exams and gowns and caps to organise, and it's a large part of the high school experience for the average American teenager. It seems very odd, therefore, that this is the first we've heard of it. We've seen no build-up, no prom night, not a single mention that this was coming up. One would have thought this would have been at least mentioned, even if only in passing. A rare example of Ditko dropping the ball in his forward planning. Still, it's a good opening. Peter and Flash almost have an understanding, even if it's couched in insults, and Liz being all aloof follows on nicely from Peter finally letting Flash's meathead buddies have it, as well as signposting that, for her, the end of high school is a huge deal. The senior class are dismissed early, and Peter runs over to Professor Smythe's house from issue 25. Peter has a cunning plan. He has brought with him the store-bought and rather crappy costume he's been wearing for two issues and plans to gain access to his proper costume, claiming that Jonah wants photos of it for the bugle. It's a dopey plan, really. It relies on Smythe just letting Peter in to look at it, and then it's a real stroke of luck that Smythe's assistant arrives, distracting Smythe and allowing Peter to swap the costume. It serves its purpose of getting Peter into the story, and there are a few neat scenes, such as Peter allowing for the robot reacting to his spider impulses by bringing a jar of spiders with him, as well as wrapping up the abandoned costume plotline. Just as Peter finishes, he witnesses Smythe's assistant, Raxton, pushing Smythe out of the way to steal the liquid metal alloy they worked on together. Raxton wants to sell this to the highest bidder for some quick cash and punches Smythe, but the weight of the jar of alloy throws him off balance and into Smythe's equipment. This not only bathes Raxton in the alloy and fuses it to his skin, but also reactivates the robot which snares Peter, preventing him from helping out. On the one hand, the way this has been plotted and set up is, as is usual for Ditko, very well done. The plot device that brought Peter here is quite a few issues old at this point and therefore doesn't feel contrived. Secondly, the way Ditko stops Peter from assisting is also genius, again playing off developments from previous issues. My only problem with this is what exactly was Raxton assisting Smythe with. Raxton doesn't come across as the brightest star in the sky, so I find it unlikely that he offered any scientific assistance to the project. If he was the labourer and this was all Smythe's invention, then he really has no claim on the invention. This could have been fixed with a line of dialogue that confirmed that Raxton was more intelligent than he seems, or that he was just an assistant but felt that stealing this alloy was his ticket to Easy Street. One more note before we move on. The art in this issue has a much heavier line than usual. The blacks are very black and the thickness of the line is more pronounced. I have no idea if Ditko was experimenting here as this doesn't seem to continue on into the other issues. As Raxton leaves, confused over what's happened to him, Peter is still trapped by the robot's metallic bands. He uses his web shooters to free himself, which interestingly were in his pocket rather than around his wrists, and he offers to report Raxton if Smythe gives Peter Raxton's address. Raxton, for his part, is smashing his way through cars after almost being run over. It's interesting to compare Raxton's origin story to Peter's, as there are a number of parallels. After the accident, neither man understands what has happened, and both stumble away dazed. Both men are almost run over, and both men then react to the discovery of their new abilities. The similarities fade away, though, but it did seem that these elements were being played up a bit here, and maybe more could have been made of them. 
Raxton quickly realises his powers and smashes up town before heading for home. He does have the smarts to start packing, thinking that Smythe will send the cops after him, but Spider-Man shows up and the two engage in a Donnybrook. This lasts a magnificent seven pages, and like the last issue, is structurally very different to stories we've seen before. The climactic battle here is in the middle of the story, not really the focus of the issue. The Molten Man never really became a villain of note, although he will make a return appearance before Ditko calls it a day. I think this is largely because, other than his rather cool visual appearance, there's not really a lot to the character. He's a physical match for Spider-Man, but there's no connection between them, no battle of wills or clash of ideologies. The Molten Man isn't really a match for Spider-Man in the intelligence state, so it boils down purely to fisticuffs. Granted, even simple fisticuffs in the hands of a master like Ditko could be entertaining, and so it is here. In an essay presented at the end of The Omnibus, writer Blake Bell claims that this issue is Ditko's least imaginative dust-up between supertypes, but Ditko's least imaginative can still be more visually impressive than lesser visual stylists. What's interesting about this fight is that Spider-Man is desperately trying to avoid being hit, lest he show up to graduation with bruises all over his face, and that the Molten Man is getting stronger and stronger with each passing moment. Whilst Bell is correct that the first part of the fight is nothing new, the latter half is a masterful set piece. Spidey realises that his greatest advantage is his spider sense, so he plunges the room into darkness. This is visually interesting, if nothing else. Spidey manages to wrap thick coils of webbing around the Molten Man's wrists and ankles, and then fast talks him long enough for it to set. With the Molten Man unable to move, Spider-Man leaves him for the police. None of this is actually relevant to the main driving part of the plot, though, the actual graduation, which is where this issue is really at. Imagine the audacity on display here. A comic book character not trapped in amber, but a living, breathing, evolving entity. Comics simply didn't do this at this time. A hero got his powers, vowed to do good, and lived in a perpetual cycle for the rest of his publishing history. Yet here was Spider-Man, the second most important superhero character ever created, showing that this didn't have to be this way. Superhero fiction could evolve and change. Now, in latter days, Ditko has said he thinks that this was a mistake, and it does put Spider-Man on the path to gradually evolving him away from what made him unique and successful. But there's no denying that this must have been a seismic shift to the readers of the time, essentially closing the book on a very important chapter in the character's life and moving him onto the next stage of his evolution. The graduation scene itself is really excellent. Lee excels himself with the dialogue, and having J. Jonah Jameson give the commencement speech is a stroke of genius that allows Lee to indulge himself in a number of funny gags. He also manages to reveal his sweet side in the conversations between May and Peter, where they discuss how much they have had to sacrifice since Ben's death, and how it's all been worth it now Peter has his scholarship. A number of fans decry Aunt May and her importance to the strip, but frankly they're wrong. Aunt May is of great importance to the character at this point in his development, and these scenes demonstrate the love she has for Peter and vice versa. Lee has a ball in these scenes, and Ditko again mixes up the ethnicity of the student cohort to nice effect. Characterisation is also spot on. Peter mocks Jonah, flashes all bluster about his football scholarship and how it'll improve his standing with the ladies, and Jonah is at his odious best when trying to win Peter back after his most recent selling of pictures to the Daily Globe. It's the Liz Allen scenes that steal the show, though. 
For many issues, Stan and Steve have done remarkable things with what should have been a throwaway character. She's gone from being a mean girl to somebody we have genuine sympathy for. And here she reveals to Peter her intentions weren't just attempts to make Flash jealous. As she grew up, she started to be attracted to Peter's intelligence and admits here that she genuinely had a crush on him. She admits that Peter probably just thought she was a dizzy blonde and this is actually quite heartbreaking to both Peter and the reader. Peter realises there are roads not taken here, and he seems to be genuinely saddened by it. Her final words, goodbye, Petey, and good luck, is beautifully touching. We'll note that Betty doesn't even bother to show up. The issue closes with Peter leaving his high school for the last time. There's very much a feeling of tidying up loose ends and closing one book, only to start another. Amazing Spider-Man 28 is very much the culmination of this strip since its inception. Whilst an argument can be made that the graduation had no build-up at all, the fact that Lee and Ditko went here is very brave. This sets Peter Parker on a new path and into completely new territory. The strip is no longer the predictable romp of the early days, but promises to be surprising and different every issue. The reader is left here with an overwhelming feeling of, what next? What's next for us is the final issue for this episode. Amazing Spider-Man Annual Number 2, which is by no means a rival for Amazing Spider-Man Annual Number 1 as the best issue of a comic ever, but it is entertaining in its own right and the only Lee Ditko issue I own in its original form. The cover is a nice montage. Spider-Man stands to one side with a large headshot in the middle. Smaller Spider-Mans dance around. The wondrous world of Doctor Strange runs the banner, as underneath we are told that this is all new, plus three of Spidey's earliest, greatest, most requested full-length epics. We return to the splash being better than the cover. It's a typically gorgeous Ditko melange as Doctor Strange casts offbeat spells that are warping reality. Strange faces off against another musician, Xandu, and Spider-Man stands in the centre, giving the images some focus. Spectacular as a piece of art with some lovely colouring. It works as enticement even for people that aren't fans of Doctor Strange. Our story opens with a bored Spider-Man prowling the streets of New York for photo opportunities. With nothing happening, our hero heads for home. What could have been a rather dull opening to the tale is actually a nice change of pace from recent issues. Lee's dialogue is low-key and funny, whilst Ditko draws some of his best Spider-Man poses ever. Of course, the story isn't destined to remain dull, as we cut to two meatheads embroiled in a barroom brawl. A mysterious figure with a natty stash decides that these are the lunkheads for him, and he conjures a spell to bring them under his thrall. With these two shemps, the man named Zandu, which reminds me of Olivia Newton-John for some reason, will be able to recover the other half of the fabled Wand of Watum from Doctor Strange, Master of the Mystic Arts. This plot is a little lacking. Xanadu makes the Shemps feel no pain and fear no man, but he doesn't actually give them super strength, so even though they can punch each other and smash oak counters, they would still suffer the effects, such as a broken nose or a busted hand. Stan's narration is also a little clumsy. He uses from whence he came, when whence means from were, so essentially he's saying from from were, and he also has Doctor Strange's keen ears pick up the sound of slamming doors. You don't have to have keen ears to pick up the sound of something slamming. Nevertheless, the Shemps overpower Strange and take his half of the Wand of Watum. Spider-Man happens by and sees them. 
He doesn't seem to recognise that this is the sanctum sanctorum of Doctor Strange, but the shemps beat on Spidey with ease. Before he can pass out, our hero plants a spider tracer on them. Xanadu plugs the two ends of the wand together, and then we are treated to scenes of him doing, well, whatever the hell he likes. Logic be damned. This is why I don't really like magic characters or stories. There has to be an internal logic to what they can and can't do, or it just feels like the writer throws anything at the reader they want, and they get away with it, because magic. I hate stories like that. Granted, there's no external logic to Doctor Strange either, so... The rest of this issue proceeds on this path. Xanadu can do whatever the hell he wants, conjure up anything he desires, because, as I say, magic. Spider-Man tracks him down thanks to the Tracer, but Xanadu condemns him to another dimension. Quick thinking as ever, Spider-Man webs the wand of Watum in after him, so Xanadu has to send his shemps in after Spidey. In the meantime, Doctor Strange has tracked Xanadu to his home and all hell breaks loose. Spider-Man and the Shemps return and Strange helps Spider-Man to shatter Xanadu's control over them. Then they team up to battle Xanadu. He's no match for the combined power of both men and Doctor Strange wipes Xanadu's memory and removes all of his mystical power and that from the wand, rendering it nothing but a nice little ornament. Amazing Spider-Man Annual number 2 isn't so much a Spider-Man story as a precursor to Marvel team-up, in that Spidey blunders into a situation that is quite far out of his normal purview, and then has to spend most of the issue playing catch-up. Such is the case here. It's not that this isn't enjoyable, but it's enjoyable because of Stan's irreverent dialogue and Steve's stunning visuals. Had this story been by any other creative team, it would have been a snooze-fest. Spider-Man just doesn't belong in Doctor Strange's world, any more than he should be jetting to the moon or preventing world domination. Doctor Strange isn't given any real personality to speak of, and other than Ditko's involvement, this gives me no reason to want to check out his solo adventures. The issue is action-packed and fast-paced, with some great visuals and snappy dialogue, and that alone saves it from being a throwaway entry into the Spider-Man canon. There is a moment of confusion. When Spidey and Strange fight side by side, Spidey says, this is like old times. Other than Amazing Spider-Man Annual number one, where it was Peter who encountered Strange, when did they meet? The issue was padded out with a few reprints from Amazing Spider-Man issue one, issue two and issue five, and a nice new gallery of Spider-Man's most famous foes, which included the Circus of Crime, the Scorpion and the Beetle, Jonah's Robots, again, not yet the Spider-Slayer, and the Crime Master. And that about wraps it up for this episode of this Spider-Man retrospective. Next time, it's Peter Parker, The College Years, with a look at the return of the Scorpion and Craven the Hunter, and the classic Master Planner storyline. I'll be back after these messages with some emails. It's time for some thrilling heroics. A brand new podcast on twotruefreaks.com. Keep flying, a Firefly podcast. We aim to do the impossible, cover every episode of Joss Whedon's science fiction space opera western, and that makes us mighty. We've found as fine a crew as ever populated the podcasting verse. I told them I had a job, they said yes. Didn't much care what it was. So join me, Andrew Leyland. I fought for the independence. May have been the losing side, not so sure it was the wrong one. I'm joined by a man too pretty to die, Mr. Paul Spataro. And last, but by no means least, a man with a mighty fine hat, Shepherd Bill Robinson. So join us on TutuFreaks.com for Keep Flying, a Firefly podcast.
We aim to misbehave. Our first email tonight is from Chris Mounts. Bloopity Bloop is the title, which I just read as Bloopity Bloop Bloop Bloop. Which is probably TV 70s sound effects, now that I think about it. Lovely Leyland, says Chris. I just wanted to drop you a line and tell you I've been grooving on your episodes of The Palace, especially the sci-fi shows of late 70s and early 80s. I really dug the Wonder Woman episode, and my five-year-old daughter loves the TV series World War II episodes. I'm excited for the Wonder Woman movie, and I'm glad they chose to set it during the war. I still don't know why DC never had Bruce Tim make a Wonder Woman cartoon. We love watching for her to pop up in shows and dig the Brave and the Bold episode with the Wonder Woman intro. Lola and I take turns belting out the theme and chasing facing each other around the house. You're a wonder, Wigan warrior, Chris Mounts. Wakuja, we I. Why? Where is this? Is that Wichita? Birthplace of the electric guitar and spaghettios. It's a very good claim to fame that you've got. And uh, Chris did send me the YouTube link to that episode of Brave and the Bull, which I've never seen. I only saw a handful of episodes of Brave and the Bull. So that makes me want to check that out. Because Brave and the Bull was fun when I watched it. Thank you, Chris. I'm glad you and your daughter enjoyed it. If she listened to it, which she didn't say she did. But I'm just going to assume she did. Our next email is entitled Wondrous Stories, and it is from Jack Bond again. When I saw your Palace episode on Wonder Woman promising the theme song again, I downloaded it to listen to in my car on the way to work and in my head whilst at work. Why fight it? My main visual memory is from the Amazonian contest. You say it comes as no surprise who wins, but didn't mention that in addition to a masked Diana wore a blonde wig. I wondered who this interloper was, and how Diana would get into her proper place. Yeah, I was a pretty gullible kid, but in my defence, this was the first time I saw Linda Carter, so she was not as familiar. Then there were the pistols. There's the trope that a paradise decorated in Bronze Age Greek style can have secret super science like the invisible, or, as you say, transparent jet. But don't 20th century handguns somehow seem incongruous? Uh, uh, the point on that, did I not mention the wig? I thought I mentioned the wig. Alright, if I didn't, maybe I edited it out. I forgot to mention it in the actual recording. But yes, Diana is wearing a blonde wig as well as a mask, which does disguise her slightly better. I still think her mum would be able to tell, though. But, you know, it worked for the scene. Cloris Leachman-Jack continues had many roles, but in the context of 70s TV, she was wacky neighbour Phyllis on the Murray Tyler Moore show. We're thankful she didn't neurotically hoover over her daughter here like she did the... I always get a moment of excitement when I see Red Buttons' name in the credits. Then I remember it's Red Skelton who's the comedian. No, I don't know what Buttons' claim to fame is either. You've been covering some of the more fantastical episodes of Hulk, Lois and Clark, and The Bionic Couple. What do you think of the rest... Those were the only sci-fi element is our heroes. Necessary evil or necessary grounding like the street-level crime in Spider-Man comics? Do you think today's bigger budgets and cheaper effects are allowing too many stories to be become more divorced from the real world? Um, that's actually a very good question. Uh, the thing with the Incredible Hulk TV show, very few of the episodes are actually fantastical, and I think I've kind of covered them. So I have. there is an episode of the Hulk, a very underrated one I really want to cover, that has no fantastical elements to it whatsoever, so that would be interesting. But, yeah, I think there's there's a couple of episodes of Six Mill and Bionic Man that I want to cover as well, but my favourite ones are those do tend to be the fantastical ones, whilst the Bigfoot ones are the ones that are well-remembered. I don't actually consider them the best. I, I like the ones where he fights the $7 million man, or Thingyo's Robots, I can't remember his name, but... Uh, the guy who designed robots, I like those ones, or Fembots, or Death Probe. They were always my favourite ones as kids. The one where he goes undercover is like Lumberjacks. Never really interested me that much, to be honest with you. Um, 
with regards to Spider-Man, the street-level crime part is what made Spider-Man different. Spider-Man, as I hope I've been demonstrating in the Lee Ditko stuff, um, is crime noir with a superhero in it. And I, I don't think Spider-Man works when you put him in more grandiose stories, with rare exceptions, like the first Superman Spider-Man team-up. That works. Because, like I, I say in an upcoming Hey Kids, it's a Superman story with Spider-Man in it. But I do, I, I do tend to agree with you that uh, as the, the effects get better and it's easier to do the fantastical, they do become a bit removed from it. But I think the Marvel movies have kind of avoided that, with the exception of stuff like Guardians of the Galaxy. Ant-Man was pretty grounded. Uh, the first Avengers movie is, is as grounded as you can expect a movie to be about gods and green rage monsters. And certainly Captain America the First Avenger is very grounded, but that's largely because of its World War II setting. Uh, Jack concludes, liking the idea of the Lee Ramita Spideys, even if only one at a time, at the end of other shows. Uh, well, that's a consideration. Um, I'm certainly going up to issue 40, and then I think I'm going to do Untold Tales, and then we'll just see what pans out, because uh, there may be other things in the pipeline. Penultimate email from the night is, of course, from Chris Franklin. Hi, Chris. Hello, Andy. Palace of Lee Ditko 4. Is what he says. A double feature today. Hey Kids and Palace. Maybe I should go play the lottery. Let me know how that works out for you, Chris. As always, I greatly enjoyed your thoughtful ruminations on the Lee Ditko Amazing Spider-Man run. I remember Peter trash-talking Johnny and really giving him a sound brow-beating. What a great moment. I'd forgotten Fickle Betty went back to Peter after she started dating Ned. Not the last time she'd go running back from Ned to Peter, but at least this time there was no adultery involved. I believe Stan himself recited part of Amazing Spider-Man 18 scene where Spidey anonymously calls the cops in the 80s documentary comic book Confidential. So at least there it got some amount of recognition as a standout moment. Untold Tales of Spider-Man would be a very welcome addition to the palace rotation. I remember that series fondly from my college comic shop clerk days. Thanks for another great episode. Take care. Chris. You're very welcome, Chris. I hope you enjoyed this one, which was another Lee Ditko uh, episode. Final email for tonight, before we uh, knock this one in the head, is from Nathaniel Wayne. Again, hello, Nathaniel. Hello there, Andrew. Been behind on my podcast lately, and I finally, mostly, caught up. In regards to whether or not you should cover the Lee Ramita run, I would say absolutely, and ideally in the same format you've been covering Lee Ditko. No need to fix what isn't broken. As someone who enjoys Spider-Man but doesn't have the patience to go back and dig through early issues, it's always fascinating to hear about first appearances of characters I know and finding out what aspects were changed, dropped or grafted on later. Things like the Sandman having a brain for at least the length of one story are kind of amusing to find out. Of course, in my time reading Spidey, the Green Goblin has always been a big deal, though at the time I was mainly reading, old Gobby was dead and Venom was all anybody cared about. It's also odd for me to hear so much about a world devoid of either Gwen Stacy or Murray Jane. But again, that's what makes this fun for me to listen to. It's amazing to realise how many of Spidey's rogues galleries came so early in his time and were created by the original creative team. I knew this on an intellectual level, but it's kind of astonishing to actually stop and think about. I've always felt that Spider-Man has one of the best overall villain lineups in comics, second only to Batman, and so many of them coming from the minds of Lee Ditko so early on just speaks to the strength of what they did together. Heck, they even figured out a way to effectively reuse Mysterio, a character who, by the nature of his gimmick, should never work a second time, by putting him on a villain team. Anyways, keep up the great work. Sincerely, Nathaniel Wayne. Well, thank you very much to Nathaniel, host of uh, 
90s comic Retrial, which is a great show that I really enjoy. Chris Franklin, host of Supermates, which is another show I really enjoy. Jack Bond, who I don't think does a uh, comic book podcast, but if you do, let me know and I'll plug it for you. And Chris Mounts, uh, ditto. If you would like to be featured on uh, an email section of Palace of Glittering Delights, you can email me on heykidscomics at virginmedia.com. And uh, you're always welcome, always welcome to drop me a line and let me know what you think. That's it for this one. Again, I've not got a clue what's coming next. Uh, I want to rope Angela in to do the long-mooted Supernatural episode, but we also want to do a Spartacus one, because we're re-watching it again, so I may rope Angie in for that next, because that wouldn't require any prep. <laughs> Just us sitting and gassing. As usual, thank you for listening, thank you for downloading. There are many, many other great shows on 2TrueFreaks.com that you can go and find at 2TrueFreaks.com. And if you do, uh, and if you like what you hear, then you can use the link that we have on that page for Amazon.com. Click on that, go to Amazon, buy some books. Buy, buy whatever. Buy physical media. Because physical media is actually cool, as the kids today are realising with the, the love of vinyl. And if you do that, we get a kickback, and it costs you nothing extra. So that's nice, isn't it? Well, it's nice for us, because we don't have to pay hosting costs. That about wraps it up for this week. Uh, again, like I said, I don't know what's coming next week, but I hope you enjoyed it. And I'll be back real soon. Goodbye.